This is the UK House Builder and Developer from Good to Great series with Gerard Ball, Managing Director of Human Capital Group, helping you build your UK house building teams and businesses fast. We find the top 15% of talent in the market by harnessing the power of big data, 24-7, 365 digital automation platforms and inbound strategies. Leveraged by 20 years successful mid to senior level recruitment experience. A veteran of the house building industry, John Anderson has until recently headed up the development of two of the UK's largest mixed use regeneration schemes from Barclay Group. After two decades with the PLC firm, Anderson recently stepped down from his role as regional chair of Barclay East Thames to found management consultancy Adamia. In this episode, Anderson gives a real insight into the mechanics of bringing such complex, sizeable and long-term developments as Kidbrook and Royal Arsenal to fruition, how regeneration schemes have evolved over the last 20 years, the recipe for making local authority partnerships work and how prioritising community needs and delivering on promises are key to the success of a major scheme. John Anderson, a big welcome to this edition of the UK House Builder and Residential Developer podcast series, the Good to Great series. This episode is going to take a slightly different approach, and I hope with the time that we have, we can do the topic justice. But what I'd like to take a look at is really the question of how to make large-scale mixed-use developments work, which I think you're something of an expert on. But I think, John, before we dive into the topic, I'd like to understand what your main role has been within the Barclay Group over the last few years. I joined Barclay now almost 20 years ago, initially as development director. But certainly over the last 10 years, I've been regional chairman for Barclay Homes East Thames, delivering the two projects, Kibrook and Royal Arsenal. Let's talk about your experience specifically as the chairman and, and overlooking the two schemes, yeah. Royal Arsenal and Kibrick. Can you give the listeners an idea about what these developments consisted of, the, you know, the number of units, the time frame and the geographical area? Both of the developments are in the Royal Borough of Greenwich in South London. Royal Arsenal, I actually started in my previous employment with English Partnerships And I think the first master plan I got was in 1999. And believe it or not, that 595 homes in the whole scheme. Scheme was about 50 acres at that time. It's expanded now to about 75 acres. And we're looking to deliver about 5,000 homes now in very much large mixed use with substantial commercial space as well. Is the development, is it primarily RC frame or are there townhouses? And- There's basically, it's in two phases, two stages. First was the Royal Arsenal itself, which contains substantial number of listed buildings and was predominantly one large conservation area. So a lot of those were right. smaller buildings up to a maximum of about seven to eight storey. Very few houses on the scheme because it's it's an urban site sitting on the banks of the River Thames on one side and Woolwich Town Centre on the other side. As we've moved through the phases, we've got much taller buildings and we've now got buildings up to about 20 storeys. And then the Kidbrook site? Yeah, Kidbrook came 
2009. It's 10 years ago we actually started work on it. Obviously, the negotiations commenced two to three years before that. It was an old L, well, GLC, residential estate. I'm trying to be hesitant with my words mm. here because it actually fallen into quite a lot of disrepair, had a lot of social problems with it, and council was hemorrhaging cash to try and keep it going. Decision was taken around about 2000 that actually it should be demolished and a complete estate renewal. So Barclay was selected 2009, as I say, we started. It's going to be about 5,000 homes there as well, but quite a number of of houses, uh, small blocks and some slightly larger towers. When doing such a huge regeneration of an area, I'm guessing that the housing policy, the, the, the local authorities approach, really must must approach it from a regeneration, like kind of as a community issue, you know, fixing rundown estates, bringing communities together and building affordable homes. Yeah. What are the, the developers' priorities? Well, I think that the priorities change, and I think that a lot of lessons have been learned over the last 20 years about what regeneration is and what is a successful regeneration scheme. And I think what we're seeing now is that if you're involved in a project for more than 10 years, and certainly Royal Arsenal is going to be 30-year project and Kibbrook's probably not going to be that far off it, you have to consider the overall community throughout that period. So it is important that you are, right. you are starting with a mixed community. You are starting with community facilities. And essentially, the community facilities should be for the whole community. When we've started in the past and some of our discussions with local authorities, they seem to just polarise on community being the affordable housing. And that seriously doesn't work. Mm. You have to think about everyone that's going to be living there and think about their needs and their wants. And then it starts mixing together which you get fantastically in schools. It doesn't seem to make much difference where the people live when they're actually in the schools themselves. It's only when they come out and during the summer holidays that problems occur. How do you mean? Well, I mean, we've seen situations recently, haven't we, where kids from the affordable housing haven't been able to play in certain areas within a development because that's set aside for the private. And that's totally wrong. You can't have that. It's got to be very much mixed and everyone's got to be able to live together. And that's a big lesson that's been learned that we've had both of our schemes and, and throughout the developments we're doing. In terms of how do you make the developer and the local authorities or housing policy, how do you make their priorities align? It's very much a case of working closely together. It's understanding mm. the various parties' issues and wants, and then negotiating and discussing what is feasible and what is possible. That's not easy. I mean, that's quite a tough call. And, and it's certainly, we've had some issues with the developments over the years. But essentially what the local authority want is, as you've said, affordable housing. More recently, mm. what they're really saying is we want social rented housing as a right. shared ownership or any of the other discount markets out. So then you've got to balance that and you've got to prioritize what is possible. From a developer's point of view, what you want to do is maximize profit. But in maximizing profit, there's a win-win if you're actually getting a totally integrated scheme. So if you get a development where when your purchases come onto site, it feels right, it isn't full of vandalism, the scheme looks perfect, there's a Mm. win-win for everybody. 
In terms of, you know, when, you, when you're sitting down in those discussions, just going into, you know, the initial meetings and, and really understanding what your partner wants. What we've said on mm. a number of our schemes is that we can deliver a certain number of affordable housing in this particular way and at this particular time. And we stick with it. So if we say we're going to deliver 100 homes in the next two years, they will be delivered. Unfortunately, what a lot of developers like to negotiate and promise, and then once they've got a deal, they go back and try to renegotiate. And it really doesn't work on a long-term scheme. You have to be fixed in your ideas. You have to be able to deliver what you are saying you're going to deliver and don't make promises you can't deliver on. And that may be on a number of things. It's not just housing. It can be the community building. It can be putting roads in, etc. Mm. It's very frustrating if, if you promise and it doesn't happen. Let's look at on your schemes within Barclay Bridge. You promise to make something happen. Inevitably, in, in the experience with the clients which we work with, and house building, residential development in general, something comes along which is completely unseen or, you know, circumstances out of company's control. How did you, and I, I guess you must build this into your plan that, look, something is going to happen in the scheme which is going to put us off kilter. At Barclay Group and under your schemes, how did you manage that? I don't know if it's the right question. but well, no, um, I, I know what you mean. Um, I, I think... What we're always doing is we're, we're always trying to think laterally and we're always trying to think about what might happen and therefore preempt how the market might be. Certainly in 2009, 2008, when we had the massive downturn, the recession, Royal Arsenal, we worked with GLA and set up a rental fund where we actually we could start to deliver a different product and at the same time spoke to them about enhancing and delivering affordable housing ahead of program, more shared ownership and some social rent with grant. And that kept the development going for the three years we needed. And more importantly, it kept our subcontractors in work. Our fear right. was if you lose momentum on a large scheme like that, then it's very, very tough to get it back again. So although we didn't deliver any private housing for two years, and I think in, in one year we had a net minus one was our supply of private, we still managed to deliver between 150 and 200 affordable homes. Once you're committed to one of these huge schemes in you know, 10, 20, 30 years, yes. there must be a big fear of, of finding a reliable quality supply of site workers. Is there anything specific that, um, that you did on your scheme or that a, a large regeneration scheme needs to do differently to, a, let's say, a, a normal regional house building division? It's just this partnership and honesty again. So we've worked extremely closely with the supply chain to make sure that they feel part of the scheme. We include them in future phases and discussions about future phases. And we're trying to guarantee them work for the future. It's right. a tough call because certainly when you've got a very, very strong market, which we've had every throughout a 20-year pr project you're bound to have, mm. our subcontractors are tempted off elsewhere. But then when the market turns again, their ability and their longevity of work starts to dry up. So a lot of our subcontractors we've had with us for many, many years. And I think that's the right way forward. It's creating something 
special in the relationships between us and making them almost part of the scheme itself. For people to work, you know, directly under the Barclay, you know, with the Barclay badge on them, I had recently seen on one of the schemes on, I think it was on the website, that they were looking specifically for local people from the area. Is that something that happened on your schemes? I haven't seen that before. Yeah, no, we do have a, and we have had almost for the whole period of time we've been working, an arrangement with Greenwich Council, with Greenwich Local Labour, where we are trying to encourage local labour to come onto the site with the subcontractors, but also within our office as well. So we've worked closely, we've set up apprenticeship schemes with them, and we've had all sorts of training initiatives. We also encourage the local schools to come to our site to understand what's going on. And also we try and explain to them that actually working on a building site and working for the construction industry is quite good, it's quite interesting, and it, it pays reasonably well as well. So we are trying to work with local communities, local businesses, because there is a win-win for us on that as well. From my perspective, and I think a lot of people which, which I talk to within the industry, you know, Barclay are, are widely considered the premier company, certainly in London, are, are making these types of schemes work. Got a number of success stories like throughout, throughout the whole of London. But from your point of view, you know, what, what is the essence about the company that really makes it so good, these types of schemes? I think it's making sure that we keep an eye to detail and we're always thinking about what we're about to deliver. We're always analysing what has happened. We look at the lessons learned and we put those into practice on our developments, but equally in our discussions with our partners. And what works for us and what works for the schemes, I think, is ensuring that it is this win-win situation. And I can't stress that enough because... Unfortunately, a lot of developers only want to get in, make the profit and go, and the local authorities are trying to screw out of the scheme as much Section 106 or affordable housing as they possibly can, which sort of stops the development happening. If you can work together and you can actually understand each party's wants and desires, then you can take that forward. And then with the eye to detail that Barclay has got, it, it sort of – we're always thinking mm. about what the next problem's going to be. A good example is right. as we're about to put a phase into production, that when I'm saying that, that will be probably in a year or 18 months' time. So we will review the planning. Have we got the right planning consent for the current market? Is there any way that we could improve it? Is there any way that we could change what's there for a benefit of, of whatever that might be? Is it for the later phases? Is it actually where the market is taking us at the moment? Mm. That costs you money, but actually the amount of investment you put in it in resources and time is always going to be more beneficial. Mm. And I think that's what you'll see. If you looked at Royal Arsenal, I think we're probably on, over the 20 years, we're probably on about our fifth or sixth master plan. So you're reviewing that phase, but you're reviewing that next phase in relation to what's coming afterwards over the next 10 years. The structure of continual reviewing and looking for, you know, the potential slip-ups that that happen. Is that ingrained in the culture or as, you know, across the whole business or or is each region from your experience, is it it different or is that driven from the top within the company and it it percolates out? I think it's definitely driven from the top from from group, so from Tony Pidgeley 
who is incredible with his eye for detail and his ability to see where change can be made for the benefit of the whole scheme. Tony's a great one to have come into sight because it puts everyone on their toes, but actually you get some pretty good debate that goes around it as well. He's got an uncanny knack of going onto site and realizing when something isn't quite right. He might not be able to put his finger right. on exactly what it is, but when things are not quite right, or we need to change things, or things need to improve. And it could be the landscaping. Mm. It could be the fact that we don't have enough facilities. It could be the design of the buildings. But he has got a canny knack of keeping us uh, on our toes. How often were you sitting down with your leadership team to say, look, this needs to be sorted out? The standard structure would be a management meeting on a Monday morning probably a second review of key issues on a Thursday morning and then a board meeting once a month and then a a group board meeting with Rob Perrins and Tony Pidgeley equally once a month. But there's a lot of of interaction that goes on as well. There is a lot of talking between between the partners within the company itself. You were were talking to me off off the microphone just about um the autonomy though that is given to people to make decisions within the company oh yeah i mean uh my view is group is basically the the banker or the funder and we have to make sure that we Mm. are delivering the product and delivering the either the outputs of housing or outputs financially that are dictated to but you have a quite a lot of authority and autonomy to actually make decisions around that. Each of the individual companies has its own board and that board is empowered to make decisions. I think it keeps you on your toes, keeps you fresh, but it allows that company to grow. The encouragement is for the company to be in the market buying new land and and growing. You know, these these, these businesses, and it's it's not Barclay, it's a lot of house businesses, you know, are fairly kind of relentless with the with the pace that you guys which you guys work at and as as you've touched upon if if we say we're going to build 200 houses we're going to build 200 houses to attract the new generation into the house building industry and to get them excited about wanting to work on these on these schemes do you do do companies need to evolve to attract diversity to attract you know I say glibly kind of the millennial yeah. approach to it, which we all read about newspapers but is there a fear that the you know this the pace that it has to work at is it might put people off and, and what can be done to attract the new generation into the industry i think what we found is the new generation is coming into us so the graduates that are coming into the company are absolutely hungry mm. to work at the pace of which, which we're working they're also given quite a lot of authority to make decisions and they're they're taken into some quite high-powered meetings quite early on in their progression so you know we wouldn't be bringing in a a graduate just to sit there twiddling their thumbs and doing the photocopying you know almost from day one they might be having a meeting uh, sitting in on a meeting with the, the leader of the council or senior planners or something like that because we see that as an intrinsic part they've got quite a lot to offer very early on most of them are coming with good degrees. Most of them have got some experience of life. And they certainly have a, a good knowledge of technology that some of us older guys don't have. 
it's always good to ask somebody in the office, what the hell has just happened to my iPhone? It doesn't work again. <laughs> they always know the button that I pressed that I shouldn't have done. In terms of, you know, keeping your team running and attracting people, how did you motivate? What was your personal style in terms of motivating the direct team around you to the scheme needs to be completed or this phase needs to be completed? We work hard, but we also, I don't we play hard, but we, there is a social side to work as well, so we can go out and have a few beers every now and again. But more particularly, what I've mm. tended to do is to keep the whole team updated on what is happening, to keep them in the loop, right. to keep them in the loop at a senior level so they know what's going on, no surprises, and have an open-door policy as well. So if anyone's got any issues whatsoever, they know that they can come and sit down and talk to me, and they know that I'm there helping their career and mentoring them as well. A serious amount of work has gone on on that to make sure that those younger ones coming through know that there's a, there's a place for them within the company, or if not, there's a place for them within the industry. Just the final question. If you could go back in time and, and give yourself one piece of advice when entering the industry, or if you'd prefer when setting up one of these you know, large schemes, what would it be? I think what has surprised me the most and the thing that I've probably got wrong that I've said in the past is how quickly these things can happen and how quickly change can happen in the large regeneration schemes. I started Kibrook 10 years ago and we were doing extremely well there started Royal Arsenal 20 years mm. ago and I thought we'd almost be finished by now and actually the impact of that on the whole of the area of Woolwich and what some extent South London would be immense and it isn't. It's such a slow change mm. to go from deprivation that there was there to what is now coming through. And I think that the other thing is that I need, I have learned that you need to be talking to all partners at the most earliest stage of any scheme and then right the way through the scheme. There is no point in time when you can say, I've had that conversation, I don't need to have it again. You need to keep going right. and having the same conversations often. It's constant. I think it is that constancy. Right. It's okay. the constancy and, and the time it takes. And if you talk to, as I do, quite a lot of local and national politicians, they'll say almost the same thing. Somebody asked mm -hmm. me when um, Sadiq Khan came in, four years ago now, almost four years ago, what do you think the impact will be? Yeah. I said, well, actually, he won't see any of it from the construction side because it takes you four years to actually start the scheme to finish it. And, and we are now just seeing his, his new London plan is coming in in the year we're going to right. a new mayor. I'm not going to comment on who will be the next mayor of London, but if it's if it yeah. not Sadiq Khan, then we'll be starting all over again. It's amazing how long <laughs> these things do take. Time is the biggest issue, I think, for me on all of this, and how long everything takes. Time and being consistent and constant. John, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I was just going to add, I mean, we talked about it, it off air just over the last month or two months now. I've now stepped down as chairman at Barclay. So I'm actually consultant to them and consultant to a few other companies as well. So my, my time with Barclay is changing, but I'm still mentoring the staff that are there, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And now you're providing consultancy services to yeah, yeah. other developers. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to get in contact with John, feel free to... a good plug. 
I will pass pass your details on to him. But yeah, really fantastic speaking with you. Thank you for giving me a bit more insight. I, I know that, that there's obviously much more that we could we could go into and go into depth in in terms of some other areas. But hopefully, we we, we covered a, a broad enough range to keep the majority of people happy. Thank you once again, John. My pleasure. Thank you. Discover how to build your UK house builder business and attract the top 15% of leadership talent using one-to-many platforms, automation, and 24-7, 365 proven digital strategies before your competition. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts from the Good to Great series, featuring leading voices from the UK house building industry, from small to medium businesses to leading PLCs. Don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content possible. For more information, call 0203 800 1080 or check out www.hc-group.co.uk and book a client or candidate blueprint strategy session.